Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. As I'm sure you can imagine, Researching and compiling these stories is no easy matter, and very time-consuming, especially since so many great Algonquin Park human history books are now out of print. To do so, just go to my AlgonquinParkHeritage.com website and click on the Be a Patron button. With four levels of support to choose from, there should be something for everyone. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or other merch, click the Gifts and Gears button. You can also go to my show page, www.podbean.com, and click there on the Become a Patron button on the top right corner. Either way, thanks in advance for your continued support and listenership. As I noted in the last episode, one of the really interesting aspects of Chief Ranger Peter Thompson's first Algonquin Park report was the almost nonchalant way he described the fact that the newly constructed dam at Tea Lake was expected to raise the water level by nearly four feet. Though he did express concern about how close the Gilmore Lumber Camp was to the new park headquarters building, and that by cutting down so much of the pine and other trees that he was hoping to preserve, they had marred the beauty of the place, he had nothing to say about the impact that such a dramatic change in the waterline might have on the Canoe Lake landscape. Now, within the context of the time, this was by itself not all that unusual. Lumbermen were kings of the Ontario economy of the time and generally were able to do just about anything that they wanted. So to try and share with you some of that context, what I wanted to do in these next two episodes is to give you a sense of what the Oxtongue River, South Tea, Canoe Lake, Joe, and Smoke Lakes area looked like in the pre-Gilmore time share why the Gilmore Lumber Company built South Tea Lake Dam in the first place, and then what happened to the firm as they tried to get their logs from the Algonquin Highlands to their mill at Trenton on the Bay of Quinte. For these episodes, in addition to my own research for many of my books and other podcasts, most of the content comes from a few key sources. These include When Giants Fall, The Gilmore Quest for Algonquin Pine by Gary Long and Randy Whiteman, Algonquin Park's Moet, Little Town of Big Dreams by Mary Garland, a Raven article called Our Eyes Are Dim We Cannot See from August of 2003, the remaking of the Tea Lake Smoke Canoe Lake Landscape, and Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival. Now, as I have previously shared in Episode 27 and 28 about the history of Algonquin's interpretive program, Understanding the flora and fauna of ecosystems didn't really seep into anyone's awareness until the 1930s, so it's not fair to project 2022 mindsets onto 1890s sensibilities. But still, having grown up next to a mass of stumps at the south end of Canoe Lake, it wasn't until 1998 when Gary and Randy's book When Giants Fall was published that I had any inkling that there was a story behind all that ugliness. And it wasn't until 2003 when the Raven published an 1837 map of the South Tea Canoe and Smoke Lake areas that it was possible to see how extensive the flooding 
actually was. For much of the 19th century, the Gilmore family were the one of the giants on the Canadian lumbering scene and one of the most powerful enterprises of the day. As Long and Whiteman wrote in When Giants Fall, they made millions stalking and felling the majestic pines of Ontario and Quebec's primeval forest. They succeeded because, as according to Long and Whiteman, they were smart, ruthless, ambitious, innovative, lucky when they needed to be, and not afraid to gamble everything when the stakes warranted the risk, as you will soon discover. Originally from Scotland, the patriarch, Alan Gilmore Sr., started a modest timber merchandising business in Glasgow in the 1790s. Alan was, according to John Rankin, who later managed a descendant of the original Gilmore Company and wrote a history of the firm, described Alan Gilmore Sr. as rough, uncouth in both form and nature, of dogged determination, and a man who in one sense would act first and then think afterwards, and to drive to look only in one direction towards the end he desired to achieve. Seguine and tenacious of purpose, he was not a man to take denial or admit failure or tolerate it in others. He was always anxious to have his own way, was impatient of contradiction and imperious of tone, possibly a powerful but not an attractive man. Many of these characteristics made their way through two generations of Gilmores to David Gilmore, who is the key protagonist in this story. In 1804, Alan Gilmore Sr. teamed up with two cousins, John and Arthur Pollock, and became shipowners, importing tar, hemp, flax, as well as timber from the Baltic region of Europe. As mentioned in previous podcasts, this was around the time of the French blockade, which was the origin of the English interest in the Canadian timber trade. In 1811, Gilmore toured Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Quebec, searching for merchantable timber. During that visit, he saw old-growth eastern white pine trees that were 50 meters high and over one and a half meters in diameter. Encouraged, in 1812, he set up a firm near the mouth of the Miramichi River. He appointed two family members, his nephew James Gilmore, and a nephew of the Pollocks, Alexander Rankin, to manage this new business. The business began by importing lumber camp supplies, but soon expanded into timber exporting, shipbuilding, the construction of wharves and stores, and eventually they built a sawmill. By 1820, the firm controlled virtually all timber operations in the Miramichi River watershed. And over the years, a collection of nephews, cousins, and brothers came to work for the firm personally selected and trained by Alan Gilmore, Sr. As the forest reserves and the Maritimes declined, they were easily able to expand their operations. This they did as separate partnerships in Quebec and later in Bytown, now Ottawa, on the Ottawa River, concentrating on the Gatineau River watershed. According to When Giants Fall, in 1934, they stunned the competition by sending agents far up the St. Lawrence in the spring where they intercepted and purchased the entire drive of timber rafts from the lumbermen, bypassing the normal bidding procedure at Quebec City. This daring move made them princely profits, but won them no friends. By the end of the 1840s, they were the largest timber limit holders in the area, 
with more than 10,000 square kilometers. Though the square timber trade remained generally strong, the family recognized that the ticket to more profits in the future was likely to be in sawmilling and moved to position themselves in that market. As rich pine reserves dwindled, the firm continued to move west along the Lake Ontario and north through the Trent River system watersheds. At the same time, the emerging U.S. market for sawn lumber attracted J.R. Booth to expand from lumbering into railways, connecting the USA and Canada. With some help from the Ontario government, though then it was the Upper Canada government, several lumber slides and dams were constructed along the Trent River, most notably at Healy and Rainy Falls near Campbellford, which were the most treacherous. At Healy Falls, one slide was 217 meters long and another 110 meters long, whereas Rainy Falls, multiple lower and upper slides were connected to form one long slide of 672 meters. These were impressive works of engineering and meant that lumbermen could now run logs during the spring drives all the way from the Kawartha Lakes to the Bay of Quinte. In 1852, Gilmore and Company established a sawmill at what later was named Trenton. This mill originally handled 425 logs a day, cutting 85,000 board feet of lumber. For those unaware, a board foot equals 12 inches square and 1 inch thick. The mill drew logs from an area that more or less bounded Bob Cajun and Fenland Falls on the west to Pass Tweed on the east and almost as far north as, as the Bancroft area. By 1864, Trenton was basically a Gilmore Company town and was cutting over 100,000 board feet a day, running six days a week, 11 hours a day, and in summer around the clock. And this went from ice out until the end of October. Most of the lumber was shipped across the lake to Oswego, New York. By the 1870s, the era of rafts descending the Trent River system more or less ended. So when a severe flood destroyed and damaged many of the slides, they were replaced with single log troughs. The Gilmore's Trenton operation, that now occupied a 10-hectare site, was touted as the largest west of Ottawa. According to Long and Whiteman, a committee investigating sawdust pollution described the mill in 1873 as being one of the finest steam mills probably in the Dominion. Enclosed by a high whitewashed fence, the various buildings include a blacksmith shop, offices, oil room, and dining room. Neat white cottages contain about 42 tenements for workers. The main sawmill is two stories high, about 30 meters wide and 43 meters long. Piling grounds for lumber are situated to the east and north, and shipping docks to the south. Railway tracks provide access, and horses haul carloads of lumber to the railway cars. Highly mechanized, 40 to 50 workers manned five gang saws every shift which was run by two 134-horsepower steam engines that drew steam from nine sawdust-fueled boilers. Overall, the mill employed 160 men and 30 boys, some as young as 12 years old, who, with their wives and other children, equaled about a third of Trenton's population. In 1870, 140,000 pine logs were sent down the rivers to the Gilmore Mill. Unfortunately, as Canoe Lake eventually discovered, 
Far more sawdust was being created than could be recycled to fire the steam boilers. The leftover sawdust was typically dumped, often into nearby waterways, damaging fish spawning beds and clogging navigation channels. It got so bad that the Ontario government finally had to mandate that sawmills needed to construct sawdust burners. For those interested in a great day trip, my paddler's guide to the Canoe Lake landmarks, or episode number two, can guide you to the remains of both a mill and a sawdust burner foundation that can still be found on Potter Creek, just south of the remains of the, uh, of the bridge that once crossed the creek. As a side note, one clever scientist discovered that, quote, first-class brandy can be made from sawdust, which, of course, had the Trenton Courier up in arms. They reported in December 1882 that such a scientist was probably no doubt prompted by Satan, and that burning all the sawdust, even though the poor who no longer will have use of it to insulate their houses in the winter, was preferable to seeing brandy from the dust send thousands and thousands to the eternal Gehenna. For those unaware, Gehenna was a biblical reference to a place of fire, evil, and death that awaited those who didn't follow the Lord. In 1877, the now standalone Canadian operations, named Gilmore and Company, transferred to the younger generation, which were John, Allen, and David Gilmore, the grandchildren of the original founder. The Quebec branch of the business was closed, and the company concentrated on its Ottawa and Trenton businesses. John and Allen Gilmore handled most of the Ottawa-based work, with John managing the mills and Allen the business and government affairs end of things. David, who was just 29 at the time, moved to Trenton with wife Caroline and focused on the Trenton operations. David was ambitious, hard-nosed, self-confident to the point of arrogance, driven to success and used to getting his ways. Characteristics very much of his grandfather. He also loved to take advantage of the latest and greatest technology, including gang saws with thinner blades that reduced vibration and the amount of sawdust waste, blowers that automatically blew the dust away from saw blades, geared rollers that carried the sawn lumber through the mill, gas lighting for easier operations at night. He also added a lath machine that made short strips of lower quality wood that was used to construct interior lath and plaster walls and a mill that made shingles. Unfortunately, just as the spring drive was underway that year, with the intent to bring 250,000 logs to the mill, a fire broke out that destroyed most of the mill. David decided to not just rebuild, but to make the new mill one of the most modern and best equipped anywhere, including the use of electric light, which was one of the earliest installations in Canada. Work began in the fall of 1881 and was completed by May 1882. It ultimately cost him over $250,000 and included an extensive sprinkler system and an elaborate firefighting system manned by a team of 30 well-trained employees. A 10-hour shift converted 3,000 logs into nearly 400,000 board feet of lumber, a million pieces of lath, and 100,000 shingles. Though the installed machinery was designed to reduce the amount of manual labor, the mill still needed over 500 men and 100 boys to operate at full capacity. The winter of 1882-83 was apparently an awesome one for tree cutting, 
As the Trenton Courier explained, there was plenty of snow for good sleighing. The lakes and rivers were all frozen solid, which made hauling relatively easy. Over 316,000 logs made their way down the Trent and Moyer rivers to the mill in the spring of 1883. Hindsight has suggested that this focus on building milling capacity so as to reduce unit production costs led to an oversupply, which in turn reduced prices, and an awareness that any profit-making at all required the mill to operate close to full capacity. Alas, even over 300,000 logs wasn't enough to keep the Trenton Mill operating at this full capacity, and it was forced to shut down for the season much earlier than expected. Matters were made worse by an economic downturn that lasted for the rest of the decade. Undeterred, Gilmore also started a sash and door factory that manufactured window sashes, blinds, moldings, casings, sidings, shutters, and flooring that operated year-round. Alas, all of this drove David to more than double the annual cut of timber on his limits. And this, of course, laid bare the underlying problem, which was not just that the mill's need for logs was way out of proportion to the company's available timber limits, but also that the most accessible and economically harvestable pine had already been taken out, and what was left was being rapidly depleted in a desperate effort to feed the insatiable big mill. All of this led to that fateful day in October 1892, when David Gilmore decided that in order to save his Trenton mill, he needed to bid on what was now going to be available a track of timber limits in the Algonquin Highlands. At the previous Ontario government-sponsored auction in 1887, timber limit prices had climbed as high as $2,452 per square kilometer, which at the time was seen as, as an incredible amount. This tract that was now going to be available covered the headwaters of the Oxtung River, which was a major feeder to the Muskoka River system. The area included Tea, Canoe, Joe, Potter, and Burnt Island Lakes. Surveyor James Dixon, whilst traveling through the area, had reported in 1883 that, quote, the pine, especially around Joe Lake, is of a large and superior quality, and still lies untouched adjacent to the Muskoka waters, and along the Oxtongue River for a distance of about three-quarters of a mile on either side. The north end of Canoe Lake and sand plains, like what is now called Sims Pits, was said to have supported extensive stands of almost pure pine. By the end of the day, that fateful day, David Gilmore had spent $703,875 for seven contiguous parcels covering some 225 square kilometers in Peck, Hunter, and McLaughlin townships. For the Canoe Lake limit, he paid $6,757 per square kilometer, a price nearly three times the maximum price that was paid at the 1887 government auction, as I previously mentioned. Gilmore was said at the time to have commented that, quote, he believed his new Algonquin limits contained enough timber to supply the Trenton Mill for another 30 years. Of course, all he had to do was to figure out how to get all these pine logs to his Trenton mill. And there was one big problem. 
In addition to the fact that the mill was 445 kilometers away, the river driver route from Canoe Lake to Trenton wasn't downhill. And J.R. Booth's railways weren't a possibility. Though construction of the line had begun in 1892, it would not be open for another five years. In order to transport his logs to Trenton, David Gilmore was going to have to use the traditional method, float them down the rivers. As Long and Whiteman noted, high ranges of hills separated the Muskoka watershed from the southward flowing Trent. And this meant that Gilmore was going to have to figure out a way to get these cut logs up and over a hundred meter height of land from Lake of Bays to Raven Lake. He was going to have to figure out how to get men and supplies into the area that was not accessible by any road. I think it's time for another musical interlude, as well as a message from the Wildlife Research Station. Here I bring you Paddle and Portage from Dan Gibson's Solitude's Algonquin Suite.
Located in the heart of Algonquin Provincial Park, the not-for-profit Algonquin Wildlife Research Station has been pioneering biological research, wildlife conservation, and student training in the natural sciences for over 75 years. Today, the facility hosts some of the longest-term ecological studies in the world, which continue to provide invaluable baseline information for the protection of lands, waters, and their inhabitants. The Algonquin Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. For those unaware, the Oxtongue River is a headwater of the Muskoka River and runs southwesterly from South Tea Lake into Lake of Bays. The Oxtongue has long been used by indigenous peoples, explorers, and is the primary canoe route north and from there to the easterly flowing Madawaska and Petawawa river systems. James Dixon was the first surveyor through the area, who finished his survey work there in 1884, and his book Camping in the Muskoka Region was based on a summer canoe trip through the area in 1885. Parts of the Oxtong River are a lovely meandering stream, but other parts are predominantly rapids and steep waterfalls, most notably at High Falls and Ragged Falls. Even reaching a reasonable spot to set out required Dixon and company to portage five miles from Lake of Bays to what was then called Hunter's Bridge. Hunter's Bridge was the eastern end of a government colonization road which connected to the northern end of the Bob Cajun Road. It was named after an early settler who built a cabin, moved his family there, and proceeded to die there one severe winter. Luckily, a neighbor nine miles to the south got worried and snowshoed in to find the wife and children, quote, huddled around a small fire eating a few frozen potatoes, which was their only food. As Dixon described in his book Camping in the Muskoka Region, the stream, hemmed in and somewhat narrowed in its channel by projecting rocks, dashes foaming and tossing down an inclined plane over sharp pointed rocks and large boulders, terminating at the bottom in either a deep bay or a rapid. From Hunter's Bridge to Oxtongue Lake, the shores of the river were, according to Dixon, completely overhung by projecting cedars, alder, birch, and hemlock, with here and there the top of a fallen tree nodding and swaying, the lower limbs being submerged in the rippling water, while straight cedars, denuded of their limbs, but studded with sharp projecting knots lie treacherously a few inches underneath the surface. A danger, as I'm sure you can imagine, to birch bark canoes of the day. This section, north from Oxtongue Lake, rose a hundred meters through ragged and high falls to today's South Tea Lake Dam. It is generally a meandering stream with sandy banks interspersed with small rapids. Some of the area was blocked by significant amounts of floodwood, with all sizes and varieties of trees and logs piled in every conceivable shape. In most places, the piles were solid to the bottom, with the water boiling and bubbling among them. Interestingly, according to Dixon, some of these blockages would stay in the same place for years, and others would break up and move downriver during the spring floods and form separate jams at other turns in the river. This suggests he must have been through the area many, many times. Of course, the sandy banks didn't help, as their erosion 
cause trees to fall and block the river as well. Now all of this changed, of course, when the Gilmores cleaned out the river and built log chutes to get around the most difficult of the falls and rapids. In addition to making the river navigable, Gilmore had to build what was then called a tote or cage road to the limits, which he later extended another 11 kilometers to the north end of Canoe Lake. But the road wasn't really a road at all. It was just a winding and very rough wagon trail. Though the worst rocks were levered out of the way, only just enough trees were cut to allow passage of a wagon. Swampy parts were covered with logs laid side by side, perpendicular to the road, called corduroy roads. Streams that were too wide to cross were covered with rough timbered bridges. Surprisingly, the road generally followed the heights of land rather than the lowlands, apparently because the heavily laden wagons were less likely to get bogged down. Ten lumber camps were set out, mostly on the shores of the various lakes on the limit, each housing approximately 30 to 35 men in cambooses, as described in my podcast episode number 12, which was an interview with my friend and Algonquin Park historian colleague, Roderick Mackay. A main supply depot was built at Tea Lake Dam, and the small village of Dorson on Lake of Bays became Gilmore's northern headquarters, as it were. Dorset was at that time at the end of the Bob Cajun Road leading up from the Kawartha Lakes. It was also the terminus of a 40-kilometer steamboat route that connected with the Grand Trunk Railway at Huntsville. As a thriving frontier village, Dorset was complete with stores, hotels, school, church, a small sawmill, a post office, and, of course, at least one local saloon. Gilmore built warehouses, stables to house the 26 teams that were needed to haul supplies to Tea Lake, an office, now called the Lockman House, and a boarding house, now called the Dollar House, both of whom survive to this day as private residences. In most rivers used for log driving, the dams were used to store water that could be let out in the spring and help flush the logs down the rivers. Tea Lake Dam, though, was a little different, in that the goal wasn't to just hold back the water in the spring, but to hold it back permanently, so that the waterways from Tea Lake to Canoe Lake via Bonita Lake and to Smoke Lake via today's Smoke Creek could be more easily navigable. Bonita Lake in 1893 wasn't a lake at all. According to a 1937 map drawn by David Thompson, it was just a side-swelling of the narrow creek, which was really just a pond. Even more interesting was the fact that the Smoke Creek was just a, quote, minor trickle and had to be portaged around, which Thompson did from the eastern edge of Bonita Lake. Most of the bay at the south end of Canoe Lake was flooded, which explains the myriad of stumps and logs when I was growing up that prevented easy passage to the bottom of the bay in anything but a canoe. Camp Wapameo Senior Island and Little Wapameo Island and Camp Omics Chubby's Island weren't islands at all. Whiskey Jack, Potter, and Joe Creek weren't creeks. They were just small streams that connected to the lakes of the north. The second dam that the Gilmores built at Joe Lake did more or less the same thing, connecting Joe Lake, Little Joe Lake, T.P., Little Doe, and Tom Thompson Lakes into one navigable chain of lakes. But it wasn't long before the Algonquin Park superintendent noted in his reports for 1895 and 1896 that the flooding of various lakes and streams 
caused, and I quote, a fringe of dead and dying trees, some standing and some fallen all around the lake, furnishing a dismal scene greatly in contrast to the fresh green woods that formerly stood in their place. The funny part is that for most, the dismal shores were just a part of the landscape. And it wasn't until there were enough visitors coming through that the dismalness of it all must have been noted. But this awareness eventually spawned a Great Depression-era work effort in the 1930s that cut all of the remaining stumps to the waterline. But it wasn't just trees that were impacted. So were fish spawning beds, especially lake and brook trout, and their ability to migrate resulted in the decimation of fish populations. Recent, and by recent I mean early 21st century estimates, are that Tea Lake Dam flooded over 282 hectares, nearly 700 acres of forest, around Canoe, Tea, Smoke, and Bonita Lakes alone. Lake areas were increased by on average 25%, with Smoke Lake increasing by 14.8%, Canoe Lake by 35.9%, Tea Lake by 28.3%, and Bonita by a whopping 81.8%. In 1900, naturalist John McCoon remarked that the, quote, beauty of Canoe Lake is destroyed by a lumber company putting up a dam and keeping the water backed up permanently, a theme somewhat echoed by A.Y. Jackson years later when he described Canoe Lake as a ragged piece of nature hacked up many years ago by a lumber company that went broke fire-swept, dammed by both man and beaver, and overrun with wolves. Now, I'm not sure about the wolves bit, which I'll discuss in future episodes, but the description of Canoe Lake as a ragged piece of nature, I think, was likely pretty accurate. Tom Thompson's 1912 painting called Drowned Land seems to well illustrate what I think the shoreline around Mowat must have looked like. A photograph that I have often used of the bay to the south of my cabin illustrates what it looked like back in my childhood in the 1950s, which was over 60 years after the initial water deluge. Both images still resonate with me at a very deep level. I hope you've enjoyed my attempts to share a little bit about why David Gilmore was so intent on obtaining Algonquin Highlands pine timber limits and what the Canoe Lake area might have been like before the T and Joe Lake dams wrecked such havoc. In the next episode, I'll retell Gary Long and Randy Whiteman's story of Gilmore's tramway misadventures. But before I go, I wanted to share another description of the Joe Lake area, captured on a canoe trip by Harry Smith and published in the Canadian magazine in May of 1911, well over a decade after the original damming. In ten minutes, the park had claimed us for its own. A bend in the lake had shut out the little train station at Joe Lake, and into the distance, and no distances are so blue as those of the Canadian North, stretched a sweep of wind-swept water that danced in the sun for the very joy of being. A narrow channel at its end led to a smaller lake, around which the cedars and pines crowded to the very edge. A creek in that country is often an open ribbon of water winding through a swamp. Some time ago, before the dams lower down had been dammed by the lumberman, this particular swamp had been dry land, bearing the usual thick growth of trees. Water now covers the land in a thick forest of grisly, 
specters of trees that once were green, stands on either side of the creek. Ghostly enough is the scene on the brightest of days, but in the moonlight how awesomely weird are the motionless skeletons hanging between the sky and its brilliant reflection far, far below. Amid those dead trees the great blue heron spends his days, and as sounds of paddles break in upon his watching, he lazily flaps his wings and soars away. The creeks are much given to winding. They say that in some you may paddle an hour and arrive but twenty feet from where you start. Occasionally the high banks come to the very edge of the waterway, and fresh green trees overhang it on every side. At the foot of a little waterfall, so beautiful, that had it been near civilization, its fame would have spread far, we had to unload and make a portage. A little farther on, a great beaver dam, five or six feet high, and holding back a good-sized pond, barred our way, and again the load and canoe were carried. Here were traces of the builders, spending the early autumn days in preparation for the coming winter. Felled trees, bereft of twigs and bark, told of succulent stores beneath the domes of twigs that with very careful looking one might see nearby. Two more portages, one quite long, brought us beyond two small lakes, and we were at the south end of Island Lake, one of the largest in the park. For miles it stretched before us, an occasional island or great point standing out against its blue-black waters. There is in the air of that north country an invigorating quality one does not find in lower altitudes, even by the sea. But it is in the early morning, reeking with the smell of forest and the smoking dew, that its invigoration is almost intoxicating. It was a glorious thing to stand on the rocky point of that little island shortly after the break of the next day. Over great banks of snowy clouds the sun shone out of a clear, cold sky. The far end of the lake was lost in a sea of white mist which against the dark green shores on either side swirled upwards in great wisps. To the right and farther up the lake a deep bay had its narrow entrance. One could not see it shut in by the hills of pines and cedars, but out of it and over the wooded hills floated billows of mist as if the bay beneath were a seething cauldron. On fine days the luminant sky is dotted with well-defined clouds of snowy brilliance. There is no fading of brilliancy into the blue. To the very edge they stand out solid blocks of billowy, shining whiteness, and so they pass across the sun one sees their shadow move over the country like that of a moving figure across the floor of a room. At evening there are gorgeous sunsets, no gentle mix of tones, but vibrant reds and yellows that flash out against clouds now purple and distant black forests. The lake reflects the glares and all is still. So it was one night when we camped at the top of a hill from which we saw for miles on every side and felt that we were at the very apex of the world. Years ago a forest fire had ravaged that country, and all about were gaunt ghosts of the past in great charred stumps and bare trunks that stood some as high as sixty feet against the sky. Weirdly desolate and yet majestic was the scene, all color and no sound. Seemingly from the heart of this rose the moon, a glowing ball of orange fire against which stood the dead trees, ghostlier than ever. And when the moon had risen high and paled to silver, 
her gentle light fell over the desolate scene, and dimly we could still see the hills that stood beneath us several miles in the distant beyond. Standing on that hill, we felt the stillness and the solitude of all that wonderful country. We knew that here and there throughout the great park, little parties such as our own sat about their campfires or slept in their tents, but the loneliness of the land was all about us. For a time, no sound was heard, and then from different points around there floated on the air the male alto howl of the wolf, and we pictured him sitting on his haunches with his muzzle pointed to the moon, pouring out his soul. Until next time.